Bibles, if you would, to Galatians. Oh, I'm not hiding. I'm just trying to put something on I'm supposed to put on. Galatians chapter 6. If you look at the beginning of the church at Jerusalem, we, we find initially there's 3,000 converts. And then shortly after, in Acts 4.4, another 5,000 men, possibly women and children in addition to that, are added to the church. So we could safely say at that time, there, there's at least 8,000 people gathering. And there's 12 apostles. We know Judas is gone but Matthias takes his place. And we know there's seven deacons. So in this 8,000 people plus, there's 19 men that are supposed to have the kind of contact with everybody inside that church so they can meet everybody's needs. That amounts to 421 people per individual leader in that church. And so we would say, there's no way they can meet those needs. They just don't meet those needs. So how is that supposed to be done in a church like was meeting in Jerusalem? And how is that supposed to be done in a church like ours that meets together each Sunday morning? I think Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. Again, the first thing is there, they devote themselves to the teaching of the apostles, and that's something that can be done in a large crowd, and it was done in a large crowd. But in Acts chapter 2, verse 44, we find this, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. In other words, we know also in this particular church, there was meeting going on all through the week, daily meeting going on. And it was going on in homes as they were breaking bread, and this was not really communion that was going on inside the home. It was meals that were being shared together. And all of a sudden, what was large and intaking all of the apostles' doctrine became very small in the practical living out of the Christian life. And I think the key to it was they devoted themselves to that because it doesn't happen completely naturally. It's a mindset. It's a purpose that is set. The idea of devotion gives the idea to attend constantly or continually being in devotion to something. So I might make this statement then that the early church disciples of Christ did not see the church simply as part of their lives. That would probably be the more common view of church in our day, across the board. The church is part of our lives. It's an important part of life. And the gathering together like we are tomorrow, this morning becomes an important part of that life. And many church growth experts use this idea and they have this thought process. So the people who are coming to meet have expectations of what they want to get from the meeting. So it's your job as leadership to understand what it is they're wanting to get and put that into this service, particularly this one service where most of us are together, and reach that expectation. 
and your church will grow. Their growth is it will swell in numbers, and the idea is the person coming is a consumer that has expectations. Proverbs tells us what about expectations. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Or an expectation that I have that isn't met will cause trouble inside my heart. Happens in all manner and walks of life. Anything that I'm expecting, whether it's church, marriage, work, any expectations that I've set in my heart, if it doesn't come about, is going to cause a negative thing that's going on inside my heart. Discouragement could cause me to be a little put out. Could, could cause me to get a little bit angry. All, all those things could be responses of the expectation that's not met. And I think the early church thought much differently. So, so that I could end that statement, the early church disciples of Christ did not see the church as part of their lives, but that the church and its mission was their lives. Everything centered around it. All the organization of their life centered around the mission that God gave that group of people there in Jerusalem. I think they looked at Matthew 28, 19, maybe in a little bit of a different way, where it said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the earth. I don't think they looked at that as taking place just inside the time that we're in a building together. I think the idea, especially in the grammar, of going therefore and making disciples, or as you are going into the world, wherever God may take you in this world, primary purpose of life is to make a disciple, to evangelize, to share the word. And then not to leave it there, but to grow that disciple, to mature that disciple into Christ-likeness. I think there's several passages in Scripture that talk about this need for being devoted to each other in ways that are outside of just the gathering that we have, relationships being built in such a way that the church itself can meet the needs of each individual in the church itself and there's no way it can be done with just leadership. It's not possible. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, makes the statement basically that when each individual is operating as they ought, or operating at the capacity in which God has gifted them, the church itself will build itself up in love. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about each body member being a part of the body of Christ. And they're all different, but all just as important. And they come together forming the body of Christ, so that each part is necessary to do that. James 5, 19 through 20 makes statements like, if someone goes and rescues a brother who is wandering from the truth, in other words, if some congregation member, if some leader, if some part of this body takes it upon themselves at the responsibility to go after somebody who is wandering, there's great positive that comes from that. We looked at 1 Thessalonians 5.14 as Joey preached last week. 
He's urging you, brothers, to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. And again, it's, it's an admonition to everybody inside of the congregation, each individual person, in order for this to be done in a way that makes the church healthy and grow as it ought. So the question is, how devoted are you and I to not only knowing the doctrines of Christianity, the doctrines of Jesus Christ and his gospel, and how devoted are we to each other to the point of meeting the needs of each individual inside of the church and helping them become a better follower of Jesus Christ? Another question to answer, too, as we're thinking through this, does the level of our devotion in this matter have any bearing on our spiritual condition? Does it have any bearing on our spirituality or our maturity? And is it going to have any bearing on the amount of contact that we have with each other outside of just the gathering we have this morning? And I'm going to say it has everything to do with that. And I think the early church would understand it takes everything to do with that. And there's one other passage that, that these passages I just men mentioned aren't necessarily parallel passages, but, but they're forming or at least helping understand this, this basic understanding of one another together. And the one I want to look at this morning, the Galatians chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Paul says, brothers, so he's addressing all there in the congregation. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you, and I think that you goes back to the brothers too. He's not talking necessarily to a particular part of the body, but all the body. And then he identifies them as this. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch over yourself lest you too be tempted. So he begins with, brothers, if anyone's caught. So the question is, what, what does it mean when somebody's caught? Phrase can be taken two different ways. M most argue for one of these two. There are other thoughts on it too. But the word caught means overtaken. It means surprised suddenly. can have the idea of being detected also. So, so one of the thoughts is, someone who's entrapped in sin is detected by somebody who unintentionally comes upon them in their sin and now they discovered the sin of the individual. That could be part of what's happening. But, but we know there's no self-appointed sin detectors in the church. It's not our job to go into everybody's business and try and find things that are wrong so that we can help correct them. Maybe this is the first time this person is engaged in this sin when somebody unintentionally comes upon them and discovers it. Could be that they've been entrapped in this sin for a long period of time and nobody has come upon it at this point. But their need in being helped and maybe the being caught is what begins that help because they're not at a point of repentance yet. Because you can always know when somebody's at a point of repentance when they're in sin, it's when they're crying out for help. Because they see the sin like God sees the sin. And they want to be rid of it. So they go beyond themselves and they call out, and so you can be sure what's going in the heart at that time. 
Second idea is this. It's someone who's not directly looking to fall into sin. I mean, that's not what their mindset was. They weren't deliberately trying to make decisions to fall into the sin that had trapped them. But quite suddenly it overtook them. Quite suddenly now they find themselves in a mess they didn't want to be in. It doesn't mean they're without fault or it's something that they couldn't help. It doesn't mean that there weren't poor decisions or unwise decisions that you could track and go, listen, we know know how you got there. All all that could be possible. Kind of like we would say in our mind, anybody's capable of anything if they're in the right place, at the right time, with the right circumstances, with the temptation in that manner causes us to fall. You think of David and Bathsheba. David's a man after God's own heart. And yet we find if we track David at this point in time, he's, he's at the palace instead of out on the battlefield with his men, where kings are supposed to be. He's walking on his rooftop after getting off from his couch, so we know he's not really active in his day. He sees Bathsheba bathing from the roof of his palace. He finds her appealing and he calls her up to the palace and he sleeps with her. Later she informs him that she's pregnant. And now David is at a point where he's going to have to hide his sin. And so he calls Uriah home. And he asks Uriah to go spend some time at home, take some relaxation from the war. And Uriah is a very honorable man and he won't do it. My commander's out in a tent. The fellow people fighting with me are out in tents. There's no way I'm going home to the comfort of my home or to my wife. So he sleeps outside with the servants. And so David's not getting anywhere with them. So now he compounds everything that's going on. And he tells Joab, I'm sending Uriah. I want you to put him on the front line and I want to make sure he doesn't return. And in the end, we find Uriah dies and several other soldiers with him. But, but we would say this, David did not stay home from war on purpose so that he could meet Bathsheba. It quite suddenly came upon him. And we can say David did not make good decisions in the process. But he was engulfed. And he was entrenched. And he was continued to be entrapped through the scenario. So what do you and I do when we come in contact with somebody who has been entrapped in sin? Again, whether we come upon them and discover the sin, or they come to you about the sin, what do we do? And Paul Paul gives five different instructions, not for the leadership of the church to do, Although the leadership of the church should be doing this constantly too. But five instructions that everybody in the church should do. And he's specifically saying to those who are spiritual. It's a spiritual responsibility. It's a spiritual undertaking that should be felt by everyone in the church. But someone who does undertake it does have to be spiritual. They have to be spiritually minded at the time because it's no ordinary undertaking. 
So he begins by saying, you who are spiritual should restore him in the, the spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves lest you too be tempted. In other words, those who are spiritual or who are taking this spiritual responsibility should restore them. So who, who's spiritual? And again, natural thought or leadership. But Paul could have well written, when someone is found in sin, those of you who are leaders, it's your responsibility to do something about it. But he's not. He's still talking about brothers. They have responsibility in this. This would include basically those in the chapter 5 that Brett read about. Those who are walking in the Spirit. Galatians says, But I say walk by the Spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness. And again, gentleness is is the key in what we're talking about this morning. Self-control and against such there's no law. So those who are spiritual and are living by the Spirit in obedience to the word that they know, there's no reason to regulate that. You don't regulate love. And you don't regulate patience. And you don't regulate long-suffering. The fruit of the Spirit is something that needs no guidance outside of itself. It's the Spirit that's at the helm. And it's interesting that these fruits that Paul is saying should be being developed inside of each and every Christian, they come in a cluster. And there's not one that you get to pick out or I get to pick out and really work on that one. Because you know the ones that we'd probably pick out if we could do that? The ones that are most consistent with the way we're already wired. In other words, a lot of times we, we look at the person who is easygoing. They have an easier time being long-suffering, or at least it looks like long-suffering, because they're just so laid back about it. Or the person who's shy often gets mistaken as the person who's what? Meek? Humble? Why? Well, because they just don't put themselves forward like other people do. But the reality is, they're just as proud as the individual that's putting themselves forward all the time and wants the limelight. They're still concerned about self primarily. And we might have a tendency to look at the different fruits of the Spirit in ways that it looks like we're already mimicking them. But Paul's intending that all of these fruits be proceeding forward at the same time and that we're growing and maturing in them so that there's spiritually minded people inside the church to help meet the needs of all the people in the church. Paul then goes on to say this, you you who are spiritual, you who will take up this responsibility, restore one. The idea of restoring has the idea of returning a brother to the condition before he was when he fell into sin. It's about making things right with God and making things right with others. One person defines it like this, to repair, to restore to the former good condition. To prepare, to fit out, 
to equip. It's interesting, it's used in reconciling people who are at odds with each other. Same idea is used when a bone that has been broken or, or has been pushed out of place is very carefully put back into its place again. It's used of people who would be mending a net that has been broken and in his need of being repaired. That's the idea of what's happening with the restoration. That's the idea of the mind of the person who's coming to do the restoring. And the problem is when that contact is made so that that sin is discovered, whether the person comes to you or you happen to come upon it, you can't shrug it off. You're not supposed to just simply pass it off to another individual that in your mind feel, you feel is much more qualified because you came upon it or it came to you and now there's responsibility at the very least. Be willing to work through the situation when the person comes to you and if things are beyond what you think they are so that you're not able to handle it, and someone else needs to get involved, consider continuing to walk through it with them. Because God in his providence put that contact together in some way and in some fashion. And are we able to just absolve all responsibility and turn it over to someone else and go our merry way? I think there's more to it than just that. We also have to understand, too, when you go to restore... It's not going to be a one-time contact. And it most likely won't be a very short process. And there'll probably be a lot of mess that's involved in it. And a lot of emotion and a lot of up and downs. And I think Paul will point us back to the compassion that God shares for us in all our situations. As he is the God of heaven and the one who's completely perfect, Watch us, us here on earth. He says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. This doesn't always come naturally either. Because what happens when you find somebody who's at fault in a particular area? Especially if it has something personally pertaining to you. Gentleness is not one of the things that comes to our minds. Crush, kill, destroy often comes to the mind just stamp it out just stop it right now forcefully curtail it but doing so we might stop the outward action but we haven't really reached the heart at that point gentleness has the idea of moral excellence something that's useful something that's good again the ability to be gentle comes with what walking in the Spirit, growing in the fruit of the Spirit. Hopefully we'll be gentle because we understand the heart of the one who's being trapped because we've been there before. Because everybody has been there before to some extent. And it's not a time to admonish and it's not a time to sternly warn because they're already at a point where they're desiring help and needing help and wanting to be turned around. We don't back away from the seriousness of the sin or make it not as bad as it really is because that's not going to help the person any at all either too. But they're a person at this point that is overwhelmed. 
It's a person at this point that has something pressing on them that is bigger than they're able to bear on their own. They could look like some of the people that we see in Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians 5. Could be somebody who is in need of encouragement because of the overwhelmingness, and what they really need is a strong, comforting arm to help walk them through the process that they are now committed to go through. It could be somebody that is really waffling in their faith, and they are needing somebody to help prop them up and to keep them from falling back. But they don't need the two-by-four. But I like the two-by-four. Have you ever, as a parent, and I'm going to say this carefully, actually felt satisfied in the punishment you gave your child? Because doggone it all, they deserved it. And we, and we have that feeling inside. There, there's nothing gentle about that. Nothing really helpful about that. Even though it might have produced the end desire. And then Paul gives another characteristic that needs to be there. He says, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. In other words, the spiritual person doing the restoration needs themselves for temptation. Why? Exposure? Overexposure? Too much exposure? Don't need all the juicy details mauling through our minds? Just need to enter with the understanding that you and I are capable of falling into the very sin that we are trying to help somebody through. So it ought to help us proceed gently, with humility, and with compassion. With that, Paul says, verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In other words, he's saying, and in all this, number four, you have the responsibility to bear each other's burdens so we can, again, shrug it off. And here it has the idea of a weight that's too heavy to bear. A weight that is pressing down and is going to crush. That's going to be the end result. Unless there is some help in the matter, it's he or she's going to be crushed. So out of compassion and out of responsibility, you come alongside and you come underneath and you press up on the load that's pushing down on them. And this is an act of love, genuine love. Willing to do what is the best for the object that we are loving at whatever the cost is to us as an individual. And Paul's no stranger to this. He not only bears the burdens of individuals, but Paul, Paul talks about bearing the burden of all the churches as a weight that's standing upon him. How, how would you like to have that? Paul makes a statement in, in verse 17 in chapter 6, From now on, let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus Christ and those marks that he has are because of the church that he's writing to and other churches that have been established and other people whose life he's had interaction and contact with. So again, the question, to what extent are you and I willing to help bear the burden of another until the weight of that burden no longer is pushing down in crushing force? And to what are we willing to suffer in that endeavor? It's also, this willingness is also characterized by fulfilling the law of Christ. And fulfill means to satisfy the requirements of something. 
or it's used in reference to the fulfilling of the requirements of a contract that we made. And that's how we're looking at this situation where we're riding through the restoration of a sin with another Christian. And Paul's going to end by saying there's two things that could hinder this type of burden bearing. He says in verse 3, For if anyone thinks he's something when he's actually nothing, he deceives himself. In other words, one thing that will really stop this and, and cause us to discontinue, if not prevent us from getting engaged at all, is that we feel superior to the person we're coming to help. And if the person you're coming to help feels the superiority that you feel you have over them, they're going to be pretty resistant to the help. One writer puts it like this, if one has the conceited idea that he is morally and spiritually superior to what he actually is, this tends to make him unwilling to take the burden of responsibility for the restoration of a sinning fellow saint. A Christian of that character, so far from fulfilling the law of Christ, is deceiving himself to his true status in the Christian experience. He may think he's very spiritual in his stance, but, he, but he's not because he shrinks away from the responsibility. So Paul asks us not to take that position in the relationship as we go through this process. Instead, he says, but let each one test his own work. Then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. In other words, don't compare yourself to other people in this situation, especially to the one who has failed. Because there's a tendency for us to look at the failures of others and then say what? Well, at least I never did that. <laughs> at least I didn't fall to that degree. He says, test your works or approve your works. So what does he want us to compare it to? To the law of Christ. And what's the law of Christ really summarized in? Well, love your neighbor as yourself. To love like Christ loves. Compare yourself to Christ himself. Because when we compare ourselves to Christ, because again, Ephesians 4 says, that's the standard, that's the goal. What does it do to our own self-view? It tanks it where it's supposed to be. Like John the Baptist who writes in John 3.30, when he's actually encouraging people to follow Christ over himself and some of his own disciples follow Christ, and his response is, he must increase. I must what? Decrease. And finally, Paul ends with this. For each of us will have to bear his own load. Could, could be taken two ways. Each person has his own work to do. So completely do it. It's bearable work, so you should be doing the work. You should be faithful at the work. Or it could be that everybody has their private burden. Everybody has burden that they're bearing to some extent or sin that they're wrestling through to some extent but it's a knapsack at this point as opposed to this giant rock that is crushing down in contrast 
When I was in junior high school, um, in closing, I had a friend who at that point had been homeschooled and he came to the public school that I was at. So at this point, I'm his only friend at that school. And he was a pretty good looking guy and a very outgoing guy and, and easily, e easily was liked by people immediately. Well, that caused a little bit of problem in the school because he's the new guy on the block and he's competing with other people who already have position. And so one of them comes up to him and starts to push on him a little bit and to agitate him a little bit because he's wanting to know what he's made of and he's wanting to know what his new competition is like. And I said to him, hey, just ignore him. Just, just don't even pay attention to him. Just let it go. He goes, no, I'm fine. I go, he's wanting to get you into a fight because he's wanting to make sure people know he's still in charge of this little area here that you're encroaching. I'm not worried, he said. I know karate. I happen to know that he was not a black belt at this point in time. And I said, I just don't do it. Just, just leave it alone. Well, next thing I know, he's getting up and he's going out the door of the school with this guy and his friends are all around him. I'm his only friend, but the other guy has all his friends around him. I'm still inside because I told him not to go outside. And if he's going to be stupid, he's going to be stupid on his own. That, that's where I'm at in my thought process. And they push him around and they knock his books all down and, and shove him a little bit. And then they walk back inside. And I go, okay, that wasn't too bad. And then they get inside the building. And it starts all over again. Only this time all the friends encircle him. And now there's no place for him to go. And now the antagonism is increasing. And it's right behind my locker, and we need to get to class. And I'm fiddling with my comm, and the girl next to me goes, isn't, isn't that your friend? <laughs> and I went, yeah, but I told him to not mess with him. And he's not listening, so he's made his own bed. And all of a sudden, the intensity got greater. And this girl next to me is saying to me, but you're his friend. I'm just doing my calm. <laughs> Things are about to get ugly. Are you not going to do anything? And finally, out of guilt, not out of love for my friend at this point, but out of guilt, I decided, okay. And as I turned around about that time, these guys who had been pushing him back and forth, one slams him up to the locker and drills him right in the eye socket. And he's about to drill him again, and I grabbed his arm, and I remember thinking these words. God, please make my hands so fast that I can hit five people at one time. <laughs> or make my face so numb I'm not going to feel the beating I'm about to get. My heart was not right in the matter. I was really angry at my friend. The end result was I was able to catch his arm before he could strike again. And I just said, hey, it's, it's enough. And they walked away. End of story. 
but I'm looking at my friend now who's got a knot the size of a golf ball on his, on his eyebrow and extended. And it's there because I didn't get involved and I wouldn't get involved. And I didn't have the compassion I needed towards him. And I had to look at that for the next three weeks. Yeah, I helped stop the fight. And it was only by God's grace they walked away. But I still had to look at that on my friend for the next three or four weeks as it healed. My question is, do we do that spiritually with people that we come in contact with? Who we know are in a fight. And who we know are going to get beat up. And yet we don't take the responsibility. It's somebody else's responsibility. Or I've talked to him. So now it's their bed to lie in. Do we go through that whole process with people that are struggling in sin that we come upon? And would we do that to somebody who is struggling in sin who comes to us to say, I I need to stop struggling and I need your help? And I think the, the, the cure to all that is more than just referring things to leadership or hoping that leadership will one one way somehow find out and become evolved. I think the preventative is the type of contact that the early church had with each other. So that these things became known, they became interacted with just by the nature of the interaction that they were continually having. Because the church and its growth in each individual spiritually in Christ was the main job or the main work or the main focus of the church itself they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching but they also devoted themselves to the fellowship and to the type of contact necessary to build the type of relationships that allow us to get involved in each other's lives in the way that we benefit each other in their following of christ And there's no way around it except to do it and take the time to do it and make the effort to do it and the cost to do it. Lord God, we are incredibly thankful for you, thankful for your patience with us. Lord, thankful for your word. Lord, we are thankful that you've given to us each other. Lord, there could be needs all over the building today in ways that we don't know. There could be those that are carrying a burden. And yet sometimes, dear God, there may be a time when that burden or for whatever different circumstances in that life has caused the individual to go over and beyond and to fall into sin and they're trapped. And nobody really knows And there's no real relationships developed that you might come to others. So, Lord, we are praying that you might help us to not only have the devotion to your word and not only devotion to our own personal Christian walk. Lord, we're asking that you would make us spiritual people. Ones, dear God, that are willing to take up the responsibility to become involved in other people's lives in ways that benefit him, and in ways that benefit your church and its growth spiritually. 
And God, if you choose to bless numerically, that, that's in your hands. But we pray, dear God, you would help us to be faithful. And we would give you praise and we'd give you glory. In your name we pray. Amen.